I'm Matthew Sroan. This is the How to Sports Blog Podcast, Episode 11 with Kylie Kamek of Next Impulse Sports. This episode is brought to you by DraftStreet.com, the fastest way to win money playing fantasy sports. Welcome to the How to Sports Blog Podcast, the place where experienced bloggers, reporters, and sports professionals offer insight and advice on building great websites, a loyal audience, and compelling sports content. And now, here's your host, Matthew Sarone. Hey, sports bloggers. This is the How To Sports Blog Podcast. I'm Matthew Sarone. Thanks for tuning in. The goal of this podcast is to give real, practical advice for people looking to start a sports blog or a podcast, create videos, or maybe you already have a site and you're looking for ways to make it better. If that's you, if that's what you need, you're in the right place to grab a pen and a pad and let the class begin. This week, I talk with Kylie Kamek, who's the co-founder and editor-in-chief at Next Impulse Sports. Kylie's gone against a lot of the advice you hear on this podcast, which makes his story really unique. For instance, he deleted his comment section, Next Impulse prefers Facebook to Twitter, and he named the first iteration of the site after a sitcom star's sweaters. The result? A spot on Time Magazine's 50 Best Websites of 2012, and a business model spanning from content to a burgeoning creative agency for sports marketers. In this interview, we talk about his story, but also how to grow a small-time blog into a business, how to provide value to clients on the business side of sports content, and, of course, the importance of doing things yourself. Before I get to the interview, I want to give a big thanks to DraftStreet.com for sponsoring today's show. In case you didn't know, they're the fastest way to win money playing fantasy sports. It's a cool system. Basically, you pick a lineup that day and get paid out that night. In the last decade, fans have won more than $100 million playing fantasy sports. If you want to get in on it, go to DraftStreet.com and enter promo code MATTC for a draft bonus of up to $200 and your first entry into a game with cash prizes. Again, that's DraftStreet.com, promo code M-A-T-T-C. And with that, here's my interview with Kylie Kamek from Next Impulse Sports. So I think what I like, uh, or what I find that I, I enjoy most when I'm on when I'm on your site is that it's fun. You know, it's it's fun content. It's uh, it's not heavy, um, but it's interesting, and it, and I have a good time when I'm on there. And I, I wonder sometimes when I'm looking at it, I think about you, and I wonder, you know, is that sort of how you experience sports? And more specifically, uh, from a content point of view, you know, what do you think sports fans want to read and and watch? Yeah, that's a well. First off, I appreciate you saying that. Um, you, you know, it, it's funny, right? It, it's our kind of content strategy. Um, it really stems from. So, I have a co-founder, Mike Johnson, who's up in the Bay Area, and myself. Um, and, and we actually started the site three, four years ago, um, and we started with just the mentality that, hey, look, we toss around emails to you know a group of eight guys at work every day. Um, and, and what's on those email chains? It's the funny thing that happened last night in sports, right? It's that pop culture video that's coming around. Um, it's stuff that we naturally want to share, right? And so the idea behind the site initially was, hey, why don't we just start tossing this stuff on, uh, on a WordPress and see if it happens? Um, and, and I think you fast forward four years, um, and it's still our content strategy, right? It's the content that we put out there is stuff that we, the average sort of 18 to 45-year-old male, and we consider ourselves average, um, kind of our, our tagline is actually, you know, we, we don't wear tight jeans or skinny jeans. We don't call each other bro. We're just the sort of average <laughs> guy that wants to go have 
a draft beer and you know watch a football game or something. Um, it, everything that we toss up there, you know, you can go to ESPN, you can go to Sports Illustrated if you're looking for a box score. Um, you know, if you're looking for a review of you know last night's Stanley Cup game or whatever, you know, you, you can go to um, you know Yahoo and get an actually a really in depth, wonderful sort of analysis of the game. But if you want to come and spend you know one minute to five minute um, five minutes and actually have some fun and watch a quick sort of video, kind of the lighter side of sports, right? The more sort of palatable things that you actually want to share with your buddies, I think that's our main focus, right? So it's serving up anything that kind of evokes some sort of emotion. We try to aim for the positive emotion. We try to aim for the funny emotion, um, a humorous side of things. You know, the last thing we want to do is put content up there that's going to ruin someone's life, right? We're not going to put a... Um, you know, we try to stray away from the stories that involve someone going to jail for a certain reason or whatever that may be. Um, but it, it, at the end of the day, it boils down to the 18 to 35, 45-year-old guy who's sitting at home um, and wants to go find something that evokes some sort of emotion for him, be it funny or sad or, you know, comedic. That, that's what we're kind of looking for. What do you find uh, sticks the best? You know, what, what clicks with your audience the best? What type of content? I think for, you know, it, it's funny. I, I think within the staff, the things that actually click are the uh, the kind of sad things, right? It, it makes you, you know, you look at that Dominic, uh, the Rangers player the other day, E60, the ESPN did, was just absolutely phenomenal. Um, and I had half our staff crying while we were watching it. Um, but the things that actually stick with our audience are the, um, like, actual athletes coming down and being perceived sort of as humans, right? So them making mistakes. It's Drew Doughty falling out of the box while celebrating a Stanley Cup, you know, heading to the Stanley Cup. Because at the end of the day, right, we all want to emulate these athletes and be like them. But the best time that we sort of connect with them is when they're doing normal stuff that we do, when they're messing up just like we do, right? When someone trips and they're heading out to the mound and you're not laughing at them, you're laughing right. because you say, wow, you know what? I would do that same thing. Right. And these people aren't on that pedestal again. They're actually normal people. Uh, and I think it's content that also extends not just to those sort of funny angles, but it's getting a glimpse um, of what athletes are doing on a regular sort of day basis. Right. It's like, where are they playing video games? Um, what video games are they playing? What music are they listening to? Um, so for us, it, our, our, you know, it, I think our audience really just kind of want to wants to you know, connect with these athletes at, this, at the same level. And I think content sort of catered to that works really well. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I, I find that I'm, I'm really getting away from, uh, you know, things that happened in that night's game, you know, um, that sort of stuff and, and breaking down, you know, hit and run situations and all this kind of stuff. I mean, for the most part, it seems like, at least in my experience on the team side of stuff, um, you know, people are far more emotional and responsive to overarching narratives and sort of these storylines that, that kind of course through uh, the game, whether they are born out of whatever, whether it's controversy or silliness or whatever it might be. There are these, these narratives that drive talk radio and they drive debate and conversation. And that's really what sort of gets people, uh, what, what gets them to tune in. You would think there'd be this a, a bigger passion for the, the nitty gritty of the game. And I think there is to some extent, but that sort of, that, um, you know, the, the more entertaining end of stuff, the more emotional, argumentative type stuff really sort of clicks, at least on the team side. Right. And I think, you know, I, I look at a place like For the Win, and they kind of morph, 
that a little bit. And I, I wonder when I look at your site, you know, what, what you make when, when For the Win with USA Today debuts and that comes out. And it does sort of a similar thing to what you guys do. It's this sort of shareable um, type stuff. You know, how do you, you know, what's your initial reaction when you sort of see that site launch and you see it get going? You know, what are you thinking as a, you know, as a person who runs a business at this point, you know, from a competition point of view, you know, what crosses your mind? Well, yeah. I'm, first of all, I'd love for the win, yeah. right? I go there five, six times a day. I think JB is one of the smartest yep. people out there in the business. Um, you know, I mean, we absolutely consider them a competitor, even though they blow us out of the water when it comes to traffic, <laughs> right? But at the end of the day, they have a beautiful platform initially called USA Today, right? Um, <laughs> you know, you have a very built-in, large, engaged audience um, that we don't have, right? And we're doing our best to build it up, and we've been building it up for a little bit. Um, you know, it, us, like the rest of the industry, I think, kind of, um, or at least the independent folks, you know, we rely on probably about 80% of our traffic comes from social or distribution sort of methods other than people coming directly to our site. Um, but it, I think it's great, right? It, it's That breeds competition, and, and even though they have a larger platform, they're going to have more eyeballs, that just gives us something better to kind of strive for, right? Um, you know, And we've taken the lead, actually, after a few things they've doing. Um, they've done. So Jamie ripped off uh, comments on their things, and at the end of the day, we sat there and we thought about it, and we're like, what value does the comment system actually bring to us, right? It makes it more clunky on mobile, Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it only, you know, allows kind of trolls to sit there and give us sort of negative thoughts. Um, so at the end of the day, we ripped that out, but it, I think it's a great thing, right? It, it gives us, um, something to kind of strive for when it comes to that. And then seeing their numbers coming out of it lets us know that, Hey, you know, we're doing the right thing here, right? Um, eventually one day, right. We're going to partner with someone or we're going to have that audience cause we've been around long enough. Um, and again, I think our content's very similar. I think what they do, um, and something that we humbly do well, pretty well, is kind of reimagine the way the content's sort of delivered, right? Um, you know, their big thing, I think, it comes with, you know, we're trying to tell stories and GIFs, right? We have a few guys on staff, that's all they do is GIF things, right? And that's constantly out there, and we've been doing that for about a year. Um, so I, I think on one hand, it's... It, you know, it's great to have that competition and two, but it kind of solidifies what we've been doing. Right. And, and it feels like, you know, their success that, um, and our success, I think it's, you know, kind of the tip of the hat to us saying, Hey, you guys have been doing a pretty good thing for a while. Keep with it. It's funny. You mentioned the comment section, cause that's something I've struggled with on Mets blog and with a lot of the, the S and Y uh, team sites, because it's sort of a natural thing. I mean, these sort of small fan communities, they want to have these conversations and, talk about what's being talked about but the reality is that a lot of that conversation occurs on twitter now so you know it it has less of a less of a place i think on these on the websites themselves on the destinations and you're right i mean it's it becomes whether it's trolling or whether it's just i mean you never know who who's going crazy and and ranting and raving and it becomes really just a place to bitch and moan and that really doesn't add any value i think as a you know as a lead writer of the site and executive editor of the of the network you know i want the quality of the sites to be a certain level and then but then when you start using language that way it's very judgmental and it alienates you know people that want to sort of be emotional have that conversation so it's a really tough thing i find to square i mean we still have it and the policing of it is exhausting and trying to you know make sure that it's uh, on point and it doesn't just devolve into some sort of you know message board fanatical crazy you know emotional thing and like it's 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 it takes a lot of 
it's a lot of drain. And I love the idea of being able to ditch them, but I just don't think I could, I could do it. Yeah, it, you know, it, it wasn't something we took lightly, right? Uh, we figured this, right? So 80% of our traffic is coming from distribution partners yep. of some sort, right? Um, where does our real core audience lie, right? Where's that, who, where's that 20% that's coming back that has this bookmark that's coming back day after day, right? And we found over the past four or five years, that's on our Facebook page, yep. right? We have 55,000, 56,000 Facebook fans. Um, and, and as of, you know, until this past December when Zuckerberg did another little switch to his algorithm and again this year, um, it's an extremely engaged audience, right? And, and it's folks that are seeing your content pop up in the news feed. You know, we put out 25 pieces of content a day, right? Um, and so those people are continually seeing you. Um, and we found out that that as easily our most engaged sort of audience. And that's where we like to kind of really nurture and kind of cater to our families, we call them or whatever, and, and kind of grow our brand there. And we found out that, you know, the comments are great, but you're getting all these random folks with different sort of things. It's like we have a nice little tight-knit community over on Facebook. Um, and so we've kind of grown that and nurtured it, and that's where kind of our new comment system sort of lies. And, yeah, we could put the Facebook commenting onto it, but, um, onto the site. Um, but at the end of the day, right, we want to make it as easy as possible for our consumers, one, to consume it without it being clunky, and two, to share it without it being clunky. So let's talk uh, about Facebook because, like you mentioned, you have 56,000 uh, likes on Facebook and you just have 3,000 followers on Twitter, which is interesting to me because there's not a lot of interaction with the with the Next Impulse Twitter account. And, you know, I think most sports fans, the sports industry, sports media definitely thinks of Twitter first. If you listen to that podcast that we did, uh, that I did with Rob Shaw, Right. Um, which if people want to hear, it's MatthewStrone.com slash Shaw. And we talk, you know, he's leading sports content for Facebook and they, they brought him on to really do some strategic partnerships and all this stuff. And, you know, one of the things he and I talk about were was this idea that Twitter's far more prevalent in the sports media space. And I think if for no other reason, then it's just easier to disseminate information. And, you know, you mentioned the algorithm on Facebook. And to me, that's always been the hurdle. There's a sort of mystery behind why people see what they do and when. How has that been for you guys? What do you do to sort of, you know, to, to rely so heavily on Facebook? And how difficult is that at the same time? Yeah, um, it, it's been interesting over the past six months, right? Yeah. Um, so the big change came in, I believe it was the beginning of December, um, the first algorithm change, right? And, and at that point, we have 50 some thousand Twitter followers, and our PTAT score was, you know, through the roof. It was just phenomenal, right? It was. Explain, uh, explain that. What, what is that? So it's, it's the people talking about this yep. score. Um, and, and so you look at a Facebook page, and you'll see a large number from Coca Cola, like 45 million different Facebook fans. But the one, real one that matters, right, is called the PTET score, the people talking about that score, which will be right next to it. And those are the people that are actively sort of engaged in your site, right? So no matter what the size, it could be 100 million different followers. But if you have a PTET score of, you know, 100,000 people, you're doing something wrong, right? Um, but at the end of the day, when Zuckerberg has a public company, it's got to make money, right? And so he's doing the right thing from a business standpoint, but it definitely, you know, hurt us, right? It's We relied really heavily on that. Um, we weren't spending ad dollars against it either. It was kind of that organic sort of growth. Um, and, and so now we're forced to spend against it, right? It's if you want to open it up, you have to spend against it. But at the same time, uh, when he did make the switch, I, I think something might have gone 
wrong in the back end or whatever it may be, but our social traffic actually skyrocketed. Um, and, <laughs> huh. and it was and it was through not it, it was absolutely not through us buying ads. It, it was not through things found directly on our page, but just random other posts that would find them way, their way onto Facebook and then catch fire, right? And, huh. and as, as you'll know. Uh, and anyone else to know when something catches fire on Facebook, you know, it, that and Reddit are the two forces to be reckoned with, right? It, it, it just won't stop. So our social traffic actually skyrocketed, um, at, at least on Facebook, which was wild. Um, but we definitely did see an incredible drop in our interaction on Facebook. Um, but at the same time, um, it allowed us to be very selective with sort of the post that we were going to toss money behind. Um, and in a way that kind of made us become a little bit more careful about actually what we're putting out there and what sort of value it provides to the audience. Um, so, and then, sorry, yeah, sorry. No, so, no, so you're putting, so you put money towards Facebook ads, sponsorship, things like that. Hey, we'll boost a post on occasion if we feel it as extreme virality. Right. Um, we, we try to stay away from it. We'd rather spend our money elsewhere. Um, but at the, as it is, it, you've got to spend money to have things really seen. It's, you know, we're sitting there now with 55,000 folks and what, you know, 1%, 2% are seeing it. You know, you see numbers thrown around that there's 6% people seeing it, but I find that hard to believe. Yeah, it's it's incredible. It really is. So is it, do you, I don't want to say you ignore Twitter, but you obviously don't put, or I don't think you put as much, you know, it looks like it's more of an automated feed. Like it's not the same, maybe calculated strategic kind of approach that you have with Facebook. Is that simply because the you know, the referral links are what they are. Is it, I mean, is it, what, what's the reasoning behind that? You know, it's a great question. We've gone back and forth um, on our team, maybe 25 times about what to do with it. It's, um, you know, there's the argument for why aren't we engaging more people on it, right? Why don't you make it sort of a human thing? And the reasoning was, well, we have that on Facebook, right? It's like, let this sort of be the company feed where people are going to go to it and the only thing they're going to see is our stories continually posted, right? Um, and it works for some things, right? It works for driving traffic, right? You're obviously not going to get a long sustained burn for traffic coming from it, um, but it does work. Um, and, you know, and we use tools like Buffer and whatnot to keep tossing things out there throughout the night. Um, but I guess the thought process behind it was let that be the kind of corporate side of the business. But that doesn't mean in two weeks from now we're not going to change and go back to the more engaged sort of process with it. Yeah, um, but it, it was – we did kind of go through it and we've gone back and forth a, you know, a ridiculous number of times on it. Um, and we just kind of settled on that's going to be best practices for now. But it, I guarantee you, you talk to me in a month and it will have changed. Now, I think – I mean, you know. I think you're doing the right thing just because if, if you if you feel comfortable with Facebook and you're doing it well and you're connecting there, it's better to do that really well than <clears> – <throat> I mean the, the upside on Twitter is so limited even if you're doing it right. It's more of a brand awareness type of a thing. So the linking, even even the best, it's, it's so low. I, I sometimes wonder. I mean I think it's more of an interaction type thing. So for me – you know, on the on on Mets blog, you know, it's a good place to have sort of Mets conversation and answer questions and have that back and forth and keep pushing the idea of the brand on people. Right. But when it comes to linking, it's just such a low, it's, a, it's such a low number. It's, it's incredible. It really is. Have you seen, um, at least with your stuff, how has Twitter kind of reacted for you? I guess um, over the past six months. And sorry to turn this around on you, but how is um. Like, have you seen any changes over the past six months, at least on the Twitter side of things? Um, you mean as far as uh, Mets blogs? 
Yeah, I mean, that's why, yeah, yeah. Just in- engagement or anything down or... No, I mean, I think it's fairly consistent. Um, you know, percentage-wise, it's significantly lower than Facebook. You know, you, right. it's easy to get in, in this idea that, you know, so many people retweeted something and, and it got, so, you know, seen by so many. But with Facebook, you get a far larger, more rich sort of engagement in the fact that, whether through the algorithm or whatever, it can organically sort of bubble up and get, you know, put back in front of people's eyeballs is, is incredible. On Twitter, that's not the case. And with real-time Twitter and real-time sports news and, and fans looking to interact in real-time, stuff just comes and goes so quick that, yeah. you know, it's, it's really difficult to kind of get back in front of the, the news cycle. Um, and I think that's one of the big hindrances to Twitter, that it just kind of flies. And, you know, for us on the, on the team side of things, you know, we've structured a lot of our, our editorial around the fact that Twitter is, in some cases, very random and fast-paced and scattered. And you follow all these different people. You might follow CNN and you might follow, you know, some Food Network thing and you follow, you know, ESPN and you hear of trade rumors and it's just all over the road. We want these team sites to really be the rock and the place that you can kind of go to and, and kind of get some context. And so in some ways, Twitter's the obsession with it and the popularity of it has allowed us to sort of reshape our, our editorial model and it's worked. So for that, I'm thankful Facebook, we have not really been able to figure out for the exact opposite reason. So when I see right. what you guys are doing and it totally makes sense because the, you know, what you're covering, what you're writing about isn't necessarily dated. I mean, it can be, but it can, it has, it's a little more evergreen. It can last a few cycles. And I think that's why Facebook in that environment works really well. And so I think what you're doing is great. I appreciate it. And then on our side, you know, it, so it may not be business facing, but at least, um, you know, at least on the back end, right? So Twitter for us is by far the best news source that's out there. Of course. From, cons- um, from a consumer point of view, I totally get it. Yeah, consumer, yeah consumer and publisher, right? right. It's a, we, we find a lot of our stories, right, that directly through Twitter, right when they're happening, um, you know, that, but that for us, right, as a tool is just so wildly powerful. Um, and, and that's, I think, where we use it the kind of the best, at least sort of uh, on the back end of the publishing set. So you've got um, seven, or at least on, the, on your master, you've got seven contributors, two editors. Um, now, are they all full time? Is this what these people do or do they have other jobs? How do you handle your staffing? Right, so we've, um, you know, it's funny, right? The maturation of a small blog into a semi-larger blog um, goes through a lot of different stages, right? And we like to consider that we've been through three stages. So the first stage we went through was, holy crap, you know, we only have three people who just founded this website. How on earth are we going to keep creating content, right? And so the idea is go the Huffington Post model, right? Hire a whole bunch of people, but you're not paying them. Um, but you also offer a platform for just people that want to write, right? And, and so we did that for a while, and it was fantastic. Um, you feel kind of dirty, right, because you're not paying people. Um, and the content's not spectacular because you have tons of people, and it's really hard to monitor that. Um, I think the second one from that that we moved on to was the page view incentive model, right? And that was we had probably 25 writers as of six months ago that were all page view incentivized. So that meant at the end of the month, we'd tally up whatever page views you've had and we'd pay them a certain amount based off of that, right? It was a set sort of thing across the board. Um, and then the third most recent thing that we've done over the past two months is kind of restructure the company. Um, I handle sort of content and marketing. My business partner, Mike, uh, handles all operations of the business. Um, and, and then what we have now is we have an office up in Oakland where Mike works. Uh, we have 
two full-time people, one part-time person up there. Um, and then we have a full-time person in Boston as well. We have myself full-time in Santa Monica. And then we have about six to seven other writers that are out there right now. Um, and so that's kind of how the company is structured. Um, we also have sort of scaled an influencer marketing side of the business, which just came about around six months ago. And, and the impetus for that was, hey, um, you know, we've been learning all about what it kind of takes to make content and programs viral among the male demographic, you know, 18 to 45. Why not use what we know and use our sort of distribution channels to help other brands reach those folks? And, and so we've worked with everyone from, you know, PlayStation folks to Sonos uh, to Fox Sports, um, doing kind of influencer marketing programs for them. So uh, part of our staff sort of dedicated to those programs as well. See, now that. Okay, so I, this I love this because, you know, I see people that, you know, they want to be an entrepreneur, they want to be their own boss, they want to write, they, they kind of are a little bit confused as to how those th- two things line up. Monetizing sports content is difficult, but, you know, because you're going up against these larger entities that it's very difficult to, to match. Now, you do 10 million page views uh, a couple million uniques based on your uh, media kit, which is impressive, but it's still not, you know, on the same level as maybe, you know, uh, SB Nation and some of these other sites. It's difficult oh, it's, to... it's nowhere near. Right. <laughs> that said, you have a very, you know, you have brains, you have talent, you've got marketing people. You can put together this other entity that can maybe help generate revenue and that can provide services. And it's thinking that way that I don't know that a lot of younger people look at it. I think they think I'm going to write and I'm going to get paid for it. And that's fine. And you can do that. But, you know, there's this whole other way of going about stuff using skill set and using experience and stuff that you could bring to the table to sort of, you know, shape something completely different. And so, I I mean, I love the fact that you guys are, you know, doing, what what did you say? Influencer marketing? Is that what you call it? Yeah. influencer. Yeah. I mean, that's a great term, you know? So explain a little bit about that decision, how you kind of made that shift, because I think that's an important uh, thing for people to sort of understand. Right. So uh, we, we know we needed to scale. Right. And so we could have sat there and kept grinding for another five years. But what happens if we don't get to that beautiful four to six million unique mark um, and we don't have these direct you know, advertising deals rolling in? Right. It's really difficult to grow that way. It's really difficult to actually make a nice living that way. Um, so I, I think we were kind of forced into it in an odd way. Right. It was I remember. One of our big direct advertising buys got pushed out of like Q4 or something, uh, and it wasn't coming in. We sat there and we were like, wow, like this is what we're going to make on Google AdSense. This is what we're going to make with the Taboola or whatever it is. It's like we need to do something else, to be honest. Um, and it was like, well, what do we do well? Well, what do we know, right? Um, you know, the internet is really, especially in the sports kind of sports blogosphere, a lot of it's just content reallocation, right? You're going to see the same story on 25 different sites. Um, if it's good enough, right? But it takes a good sort of talented eye to kind of pick out and frame up with good writers that sort of piece in a way that makes it palatable for the average consumer. So we said we do that pretty well, right? So let's take a company like just a random, uh, I don't know, a vitamin company, right? So a vitamin company that's only selling vitamins to guys and they're sitting there and they're saying, look, we've created four great pieces, which we think are going to be viral videos. Um, let's go spend, you know, a million dollars on Facebook. Let's go spend a million dollars on YouTube. 
Um, and then let's also go to a woven digital or a complex network, right? And let's go spend another million dollars with them where they're going to take their top seven sites and they're going to do a, you know, closet or targeted ad buy across those seven sites, but it's going to cost us a million dollars. We said, well, you know what? There's a, there's a niche there, right? It's like these big companies are making this content. Um, some of it's fantastic content, some of it's not good content, but there's no sort of middle tier or even lower tier where a larger company can come and say, hey, Kylie, hey, Mike, uh, Next Impulse Sports, what we'd love to do is we'd love to reach this 18 to 45-year-old guy. We know you have one website that's Next Impulse, which is great, right? And at the end of the day, if we were to post three videos, it's the same as a you know, sponsored post. That doesn't really do anything, right? Like maybe we'll get lucky and have something go viral, but probably not. So what we bring to the table is kind of we've cobbled together relationships over the past three to five years with, you know, 15 to 25 different sports sites or about the same size as ours, right? So they're not the for the wins. They're not the big leads. They're not the dead spins, right? But they're very influential in the space and they hit that perfect targeted market. So what we'll do is we'll sort of come up with some sort of a campaign um, you know, you figure out exactly what is going to be a social campaign. It's also going to involve posting on these different sites. It's going to involve, uh, you know, an Instagram aspect of it or something like that. Um, and we will manage that campaign for that brand, right? And so we will be working with these 15 to 25 other sites. Um, we'll engage them, be it through, you know, a, we'll figure out a way to make sure that they're, that they're involved, be it, you know, we're paying them or we're giving them sort of swag that's coming out of it. Um, and we'll create these different, you know, month to two month long campaigns. And at the end of the day, you know, and when we're done with what we're doing, they will look back the brand and say, well, holy crap, like that was actually really successful. You know, not only did we get these sponsored posts on just one site, we got sponsored, integrated in a very native and organic way posts on 25 different sites, four times over a month-long period, plus each one of those sites was running an integrated social program against it, and they were using other partners like their friends at Locker Dome to run a big contest, right? And then Sunday night um, during, you know, we had a Sunday night baseball, and we had, you know, Next Impulse with their wholly owned properties, which include Playground Dad that has 350,000 Twitter followers, do a live, you know, blogging on Twitter of Sunday Night Baseball or something that they were sponsoring and they were running a commercial and we were asking questions and we had other influencers doing the same thing. Um, people, you know, and we'd hashtag something and direct them towards the vitamin website. And at the end of the day, you look up and you're like, wow, they just got us 35 million impressions. Um, they got us this many video views and it cost us a fraction of what we would have gone and spent with YouTube, Facebook or with one of the ad networks crazy so i mean essentially you're like creative like a, a media buying agency uh, or a creative agency um content marketing like you kind of mash it exactly. all together which is it's brilliant and it's good i'm glad that's working for you guys um <clears throat> if you were a um you know writer getting out of journalism school and you want to uh, or not for that matter and you're, you're looking to sort of get into this field and you want to want to do this i mean what what's your advice for people what's the best way to sort of go about writing online and marketing yourself and, and finding a place to, to work? So for me, I think it's doing it yourself, right? And learning yourself. Um, and, and that's as simple as tossing up a Tumblr and starting to write, right? A lot of, a lot of folks kind of come to us or looking to write or just looking for advice and they don't have a portfolio of anything, right? And, and it's, 
like, man, you got to start writing at least, right? And so even if it's on your Facebook page and you're linking to it, just start doing that, I think. I think that's number one, right? So it's just kind of showing that you have the motivation and self-starter awareness, right? Um, I think number two is interning places. It's don't be afraid to work for free somewhere, right? I know you, I know you want to get paid, but also you can do this at night. Right, you can do this after your job, or you can do this in the morning before your full-time job. Um, so go, you know, knock on the door of 500 different websites and say, "Hey, can I please write for you? Here's my portfolio. Here's what I got to do. Um, I'll intern. I'll get you coffee." Um, and then networking. Right? It, it's I, I think you know I, I like to think eight, 95 percent of my success comes from networking. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and five percent luck. I think, <laughs> but I think those three things are really the, um, you know, get started on your own, start writing, go get an internship, um, and start networking, start talking with people. You know, your best buddy's dad works somewhere that's going to know someone that can help you out. Right. I mean, you know, and you, there's a, this day and age, there's a million ways to network, obviously, um, but to network with a purpose, network with, um, with that writing, with that, you know, usefulness, I think is always such a big deal too. Right. Um, you know, you, uh, you, it's, it's, it's such a strange place. I mean, so when you got, when you started this, I mean, what was your sort of long-term, I mean, I, I can't imagine you imagined this is what you would be, you know, this entity is what you would build. I'm sure it was something far more simple. So like when you guys got started with those emails, I mean, was that your introduction or did you grow up wanting to write or, you know, did you, how, how did you kind of get moving? I am the single worst writer on our website. Like the, we've been doing everything we can, everyone on staff, to get me to stop writing on it. And I right. think we're finally at that point where we have enough folks that are full time and part time. Um, but no, I was um, so I grew up always wanting to get into sports. Though I grew up in South Bend, and so you know, every, at every single Notre Dame game you could imagine, going out to Cubs games with my uncles. Um, and then came out to went to USC and kind of did entrepreneurship there. Um, and I got lucky enough to get an internship over at Electronic Arts, uh, worked my way up over there, um, and was kind of handling the music marketing duties. Um, and then, you know, 2010 or whatever it was, we fired up this WordPress, and there was no aspirations of it becoming anything. It was, hey, this is kind of funny and sort of a joke, and it'll be an internal sort of thing. And, you know, you'd see 100 people on the site, and then all of a sudden the next month it was 700. And it's like, oh, we can start to do this. Um, and to be honest, I felt like that was going to be my MBA of sorts, right? It was like, I can learn every single aspect of business on this from the PR side to the ad side to the tech side, you name it. Um, and it wasn't until we got that pop from Time Magazine and got a couple of decent ad buys that it said, wow, you know, I want to run or co-run the biggest independent sports website in the world. Um, and then from then it was like, I'd say about nine months later saying, hey, I also want to have one of the, you know, best and most effective um, small businesses, which includes that influencer marketing side of things. So um, what's next for you guys? I think it's scaling. Um, we number first and foremost for us, it's getting the page views and the uniques up. Right. It's, um, you know, you're really nothing to be trifled with, I don't think, um, at least when it comes to making good amounts of money and being established and being able to have those people consistently come back to your site on a daily basis until you're up in that five to seven million unique range. Um, and so our you know, year plan is absolutely to hit that mark come December um, and be able to kind of stabilize around that mark. Um, so that's number one for us. And then two, 
um, is growing the influencer marketing side of the business as well um, and kind of seeing where that leads us. But I think a lot of the opportunities will really come from, um, you know, initially as they have right now, just the growth of the actual website. Thanks again for listening to the How to Sports Blog podcast presented by DraftStreet.com, who just announced its largest online fantasy baseball championship with $3 million in cast prizes. The winner will go home with a million dollars alone. So if you haven't tried daily fantasy baseball yet, now is the time to get to DraftStreet.com to check it out. Thanks again to Kylie Kamek. I really, really love how Next Impulse is pulling the creative side of sports uh, marketing in-house. That's incredibly savvy if you have the talent and funding to do it. It's a huge gap in the money side of sports content. I mean, they're buyers, sellers, but there's no one really fusing the two together from a creative perspective while having the best interest of the readers at heart. So doing it in-house gives a lot of value to the client and customer. I love that. If you missed anything from today's show, you can get all the links and show notes by going to matthewstrone.com slash KK. And of course, to see previous shows, go to matthewstrone.com slash podcast. I'll be back again next week with another show. Of course, to know when it posts, sign up for email alerts at matthewstrone.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week.